This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode of The Extraordinary Story, we are going to cover the Our Father, which is Jesus' definitive prayer that he gives during the Sermon on the Mount and also later in St. Luke. And not too long ago, I had a mini faith crisis over the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Because the more I was learning about God from Bishop Barron, who is actually quoting St. Thomas Aquinas, and I would go on the Thomistic Institute to follow these ideas more. And the more I learned about mankind from Matthew Ramage, who's a theologian here at the college, and James Madden, who's a philosopher here, the clearer it was to me that our vision of God as an all-powerful, all-knowing being who lives in the sky is totally incorrect. God is the ground of reality, the first cause, not the first cause in history of each cause, but the first cause at the heart of each cause. He's not a separate being living in the universe, but he is the ground of all being. Creation isn't something he did a long time ago. It's something he's doing right now, creating all of time and space at once. And he doesn't sit above our maze. He's present everywhere in the maze, in his presence, essence, and being. Anyway, I've gone over that before. But in other words, he's not our father who art in heaven. And it really bothered me, which I will mention. I'll talk more about this. But first, I'll tell you that I did resolve the difficulty. And we'll start with the text. And I'll read the intro to the text from Luke. But then I'll read the prayer itself from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, since it includes all the petitions we're familiar with. So in Luke, it starts out like this. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, now we switch over to the Matthew version. This is how you are to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not subject us to the final test, but deliver us from the evil one. If you forgive others their transgressions, Jesus adds, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. So, that's the gospel. Back to my faith crisis. Once I heard the Catholic philosophical view of God, it seemed to me that either Jesus gets it wrong in that prayer, or the philosophers got it wrong. The phrase, our Father who art in heaven, seems to posit God alongside the universe rather than God as the ground of being in Christian philosophy. The problem is compounded when you look at the creed and see that we believe in God ascending to the right hand of the Father. This is all language based on geocentrism, I thought. Uh, That's the old mistaken belief that the earth is the center of the cosmos with a celestial dome 
which the sun crosses every day. The heavens are up above that dome and hell is down under the ground. Our Father who art in heaven, who now has the sun at his right hand, seems to paint a picture of what the world is like that we know to be 100% false. In fact, it's a flat earth picture of the world. If you look at a globe, if God really was in heaven, in, in the heavens, above the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus first was giving this prayer, then he's below me and to my right, below my feet on the globe, if I'm facing north here in Kansas. I thought, how can it be that the God of Catholic philosophy is different from the God of Scripture? And what does it mean that the vision we are given by Jesus himself seems to be at odds that what we know about the universe? Anyway, I took it to prayer and discovered something that I think is actually kind of true and kind of cool. You've seen that painting by Raphael called The School of Athens, probably. It's at the Vatican. It depicts a bunch of philosophers and mathematicians and scientists of the day with Aristotle and Plato at the very center. Plato is pointing up because he believed the true real, what's truly real, only existed outside the tangible universe. Just like the idea of a perfect line or a perfect triangle only exists in some non-material way, he believed that everything has a perfect form, a form it was aspiring to be, and that form only existed in heaven. But while Plato points up in the picture, Aristotle holds his hand down over the earth. He believed that we discover truth through our senses, through the real stuff all around us. Well, I think the Our Father does what that painting does. I think that our Father seems to deliberately point to God up above and then push him down below into the earth to take him out of the realm of the Platonic forms and down into the ground of the Aristotelian earth. That our Father does both. Let me explain. First of all, by analogy, you can think of the Pope, the Holy Father in Rome, that the Catholic Mass mentions in the consecration prayer every day. At every Mass, we pray to God for, quotes, your pilgrim church on earth with your servant Francis, our Pope, and Joseph, our Bishop, the order of bishops, all the clergy, and the entire people you have gained for your own, end quote. Well, why do we do that? Because we are saying that even while we're in Atchison, Kansas, and Pope Francis is in Rome, and Archbishop Joseph Nauman is in Kansas City, we are uniting these places in the Mass. We're saying... We are part of the program Pope Francis and Archbishop Nauman are heading up. It doesn't make Pope Francis more remote. It brings him close. We are Catholics because they are our leaders and we're invoking their names and acknowledging and recommitting to our connection to them. Well, that's what we're doing with the Our Father. By calling God our Father, we are acknowledging who we are. We are defined by our relationship to him who created us and cares for us, our Father. The prayer's words, Our Father who art in heaven, is followed not by hallowed be thy dwelling, or distant be thy abode, or whose name is hidden above. It's followed by hallowed be thy name. That brings his name into our present. As my college professor, Erasmo Leva Maricacus, put it, a name must be revealed to me from outside myself, but then by naming God, I allow his active reality to enter my person and operate there. End quote. So invoking his name brings him down among us. 
Then the prayer keeps locating him lower and lower. Hallowed be thy name, as followed by thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer foresees his kingdom coming as something that can and should and will exist on earth, not something that exists alongside the earth. In the language I've used in the podcast, it's saying, Oh God, you who are outside the maze, fill my heart and fill the maze. So St. Augustine, who accepted the going science of the day, which was geocentrism, even he realized that our Father doesn't put God up above the spheres only. He said, quote, The heavens literally are the upper parts of the universe, and if God be thought to be in them, then the birds are closer to him than men, seeing that they must have their habitation nearer to God. But scripture says God is close not to men of lofty stature, tall guys, or to the inhabitants of the mountaintops, but to the brokenhearted. End quote. So we can believe in the Our Father with or without geocentrism, just as he did. The prayer's metaphors seem to cascade from heaven to being here in thy name, the intersection of heaven and earth, and down into sensory experience. That's the ground of the maze, space. Then we see him in the walls of the maze, time. The prayer puts him in the present, past, and future. We place him in the present, the right now, when we say, give us this day our daily bread. Then we place him in our past, when we want him to forgive our sins. The past still exists in our wounds, and we invite him to heal them. Then we place him in our future and ask him to lead us not into temptation. Then we ask him to enter the depth of every darkness when we say, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. So metaphorically, this prayer evokes God successively everywhere, from highest heaven to darkest hell. The prayer is not meant to tell us that God is only in heaven. It's meant to help us see that he is everywhere, above us and inside us, and also below us to the right, if you look at a globe. And he wants us to join his project of renewing the world with his love. At any rate, I got over my faith crisis, and I discovered that what St. Augustine says is true. Quote, it is desirable that all, both small and great, should have right conceptions of God, and therefore, for such as cannot fix their thought on spiritual natures, it is better that they think of God as being in heaven than on earth. End quote. So he's using language that is not strictly correct, our Father who art in heaven, but he's using it in such a way that he can teach people who don't understand where God is, which is in heaven and on earth and in our future and in our past. Anyway, Jesus gives his disciples important advice about prayer here, and I think it's best to deal with it piece by piece. So let's start with the word, our. You remember that I spoke about Rene Descartes and his statement that, at least in hindsight, was the heart of the Enlightenment. I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum in Latin. He decided to doubt everything, to try to see what would be left after all his doubt. And that's what he found. He found that the basic thing he can count on is me, myself, and I, him alone in his thoughts. Only we can't help but notice that he was wrong the moment he said it. He said cogito ergo sum. First of all, Descartes' brain only worked because of millions of years of human development, and he could only form sentences because of 70 to 100,000 years of language. He didn't make up the word cogito, it was supplied to him by the culture. He had to be taught what it means, not just that, but the people who taught him what it means had to be taught what it means. 
He was not alone when he said cogito. He was the latest in a long line that gave that word meaning. And he didn't just think the words. He wrote them down with a pen he didn't make, on paper he didn't make, and determined to share them with as many people as possible, including me and you 400 years later. So when Descartes was saying, I think, therefore I am, he was not alone. His Latin teacher was there. His reading public was there. The plans he was making for publication of his brilliant thoughts were on his mind too. He didn't doubt those. The plans for the rest of his day were in his cogito also. His local butcher was there if he wanted dinner, and his shoemaker or candle merchant, or at any rate his servants or whoever purchased those things for him. And since we're talking about it now, I was there and you were there. The thing is, we are always and everywhere part of an us. Descartes and you and me are all part of an hour, the hour of the Our Father. I explained before how I heard God's voice for the first time as a 16-year-old on my back porch where I decided God must be real. I started to believe in God that day, sort of, but I didn't start to follow him. That only happened years later when I went to college and found myself surrounded by faithful Catholics who were going to Mass every day. I wasn't God's follower until I belonged to a group of people following God. That's the power of our. In his interview with Bishop Barron, Shia LaBeouf, says that the friars he was with to study for his role in Padre Pio drew him into their life. He said, quote, I'm eating their ice cream and I'm eating them out of house and home and I'm filling the tacos back up and they're not asking nothing of me. They're not asking me to sign nothing. They're not asking me to do nothing or take pictures. I'm just sitting around and I'm petting their cats and I'm hanging out, you know, end quote. That's how he discovered God was, the fa- was his father. He discovered God is my father by learning that he's our father. I love how Bruce Springsteen describes this. He did that Springsteen on Broadway thing where he told stories associated with his songs. He actually prayed the Our Father out loud at those concerts. I forget uh, with which song. But at the Tony Awards, he did the song My Hometown and described growing up on Randolph Street in Freehold, New Jersey. He said, quote, We lived... Spitting distance from the Catholic Church, the priest's rectory, the nun's convent, the St. Rose of Lima grammar school, all of it just a football's toss away. I literally grew up surrounded by God, surrounded by God and all my relatives. We had cousins, aunts, uncles, grandpas, grandmas, great-grandmas, great-grandpas. All of us were jammed in five little houses in two adjoining streets. And when the church bells rang, the whole clan would hustle up the street to stand witness to every wedding and every funeral that arrived like a state occasion in our neighborhood. It was a place where people made lives, where they danced, enjoyed small pleasures, where they played baseball, where they suffered pain and had their hearts broken, where they made love, had their kids, where they died, and where they drank themselves drunk on spring nights. Here we lived in the shadow of the steeple, crookedly blessed in God's good mercy, one and all. End quote. That's a great snapshot of his life. And for me, that's a great description of why we say our father, not my father. Springsteen grew up surrounded by God. And that's true. He was surrounded by people who were all praying the our father. The next word in the prayer is father. And I promise I'm not going to go through each single word one by one. But I do want to stop on that word father. Preachers are in the habit of saying that the Our Father is tough for some people to pray when they don't have a good example of a father in their life, or they have a very negative image of a father. 
I think that's true, and if you're in that boat, I feel for you. I know Father Michael Schmitz talks about the people he has met for whom thinking of God as a father is really, really hard. But I want to point something out, because the truth is, from the beginning of the Bible story, there are lots of bad dads and not a whole lot of good ones. Noah was a good one, but then he drinks too much and there's awkwardness in that story. There's Abraham who totally blew off one of his sons, Ishmael. There's Lot who gives up his daughters to a mob. And there's Jacob who had a favorite son and that messed everything up. There's David who became a father by another man's wife and then was too permissive with one of his sons who actually raped one of his daughters. And that's just the patriarchs. So we're not alone in having a situation where our personal father is not an exemplar of fatherhood. We're not even in a minority. I have a theory that especially after contraception, we all have a strained relationship with fathers and fatherhood. I remember how much it changed my life when I was 16 and my dad, for some reason, decided to tell me that I, the third child in three years, was never meant to exist at all. And I wouldn't exist at all if pharmacies where contraceptive pills were dispensed kept later hours on Saturdays in Tucson in 1969. Now, before I go any further, I want to say I have been tremendously blessed. My dad was great. He and my mom stayed together. They were great parents. My dad was incredibly hardworking, generous, truly formed me into who I am. And he gives me a great example of what to think of when I think of our father. But I must admit that learning that my life was an unwished for mistake was an enormous factor in my life. At age 16, I literally left home within weeks of hearing it and avoided my parents for years. And I'm convinced it's an enormous factor in many other lives as well. Abortion supporters used to be fond of saying every child a wanted child. I suppose they stopped saying that because the very idea of an unwanted child is so ugly. But contraception has made children in general unwanted and we who actually were conceived and born after the contraception and abortion revolutions of the late 60s and early 70s all feel that to some degree, I think. We've all totally noticed that when we first came into our parents' lives, we were one of those terrible things everyone was trying to avoid, a child. We post-1968 babies are all part of the unplanned and the unwilled in a new way. The news of our existence came too often as a disappointment to our mothers and too often made our fathers angry. When others learned of our existence, in too many cases, their reaction was not a joyous celebration. It was, are you going to keep it? Which was then too often answered, I'm still trying to decide. The power of procreation is one of the great powers on earth. The power to bring another human being into existence who would be nothing, nowhere, and never if not for us. And the Catholic doctrine of openness to life, which rejects contraception, is not that crazy, antiquated, inhuman, anti-woman, unthinkable rule that everyone has been up in arms about for so long. It's the Catholic Church teaching that no child should ever have to ask, was I unwanted? It's the rule that demands that every child be wanted. It is, in fact, the Church teaching us that our fathers should be like God the Father, who finds every single one of us to be an exciting surprise and would hate it if we were nothing, nowhere, and never. Anyway, this puts us all in the same place. We're all sons and daughters of inadequate fathers. Even those whose fathers were pretty good. I have tried to be a pretty good father myself. Uh, my wife and I have been open to life, so yay us. 
But I can tell you, as my children were growing up, I thought being a good father meant being kind, loving, and saying wise things that would direct them on the right way, and I tried to do that. I really did. But now, seeing my kids reaching adulthood has been very eye-opening. Now that I can talk to them with a few years remove, I realize that they were formed by dealing with my weaknesses much more than they were formed by being enriched by my wisdom. They had been formed by the times that I didn't follow through, the times I didn't notice that they were hurting, when they truly needed me to notice that they were hurting, the times when I didn't listen to what they were saying, the times I was a bad example or said the wrong thing or said nothing at all when something needed to be said. I think that this phenomenon of inadequate fathers actually points to the fatherhood of God even more. St. Paul calls God the source of all fatherhood, and somehow, even as human fathers make terrible mistakes and sometimes horrific sins, God remains a true father all the time. He speaks to his children in their consciences. He fills their world with beauty and truth and goodness. You can tell that the Catholic Church is guided by the Holy Spirit because the human beings have been training it into a train wreck for so long, and yet it still persists. Well, I think you can tell that God is the true father of mankind because families from Adam and Eve to Tom and April Hoops have made a mess of it and people still somehow turn out okay. Which brings us to who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, I told you I wasn't going to go one word at a time. These words all go together because they all express one amazing idea. Heaven, which is greater than anything we can imagine, has reached out to us and shared God's very name with us. In the book of Exodus, when Moses asked God's name, God says, I am. He didn't give him a name. He gave him a fact. His name is being, and that means we are all related to him metaphysically. But we know a new name, Father or even Abba, which the Bible calls him, which is like Papa or Daddy. We can call him Abba, because in baptism, we truly become as adopted sons and daughters. It's crazy to think that we can really call God Father the same way the second person of the Trinity does, the way the Son does, familiarly and intimately. But we can, and that needs to change us. As St. Cyril of Alexandria put it, He gives His glory to us. He raises slaves to the dignity of freedom. He crowns the human condition with such honor as surpasses the power of nature. And since we call God Father and have been counted worthy of such a distinguished honor, we must lead holy and thoroughly blameless lives. So to say, hallowed be thy name, means not just that God's name is holy, but that our whole life should show that God's name is holy. Unfortunately, we often do the opposite. St. Paul put this in a rather harsh way once when he said, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. God's name will only be hollow where it needs to be hollowed if we hollow it by our lives. It's horrifying to think that people think less of God because of the way we act, but it's true. The petition, Thy kingdom come, likewise, says as much about our response to God as it does about God. St. Augustine says that with or without our praying for the kingdom, of course it will come. But he adds, may the kingdom come within us and may we be found within that kingdom. That is our petition. And how will it come? By us doing his will on earth as it is in heaven. The only way to do that is to love God. In the same chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, 
as they are father, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and decay destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor decay destroys, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Well, this was a phrase that caught my attention when I first began returning to the faith. And it's a Bible verse that I return to again and again. It makes me kind of check my heart to see where my heart is and try to change where my heart is. C.S. Lewis has a great passage on this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, quote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased." Quote. Wow, that's true. His kingdom will only come if we value his kingdom above petty pleasures. The next petition is give us each day our daily bread. And it is related to the petition, thy kingdom come. This is first of all, of course, a reference to food. We ask to be given our daily bread. And as it turns out, we pretty much receive our daily bread as requested. Very few of us in America has experienced hunger. And even if we live on a desert island near Antarctica, for instance, Auckland Island, 285 miles away from New Zealand, we still wouldn't starve to death. So I'm mentioning a particular island, which is in a book called Island of the Lost. It's about a shipwreck on Auckland Island and how Australian Captain Thomas Musgrave was shipwrecked there in 1864 and he and his crew survived for a year. They survived by organizing themselves around a daily schedule of prayer, Bible reading, and jobs, finding ways to gather a balanced diet of plants and fish in a harsh climate where there weren't many plants and where fish were hard to come by. So they threw themselves on God's providence, prayed, and God provided. But I know ever since I was a child, I was worried about this petition because we have all seen pictures of starving people who did not receive their daily bread. And that's when you have to notice that the petition says, give us this day our daily bread. Places of mass starvation were often made that way, not because of a lack of resources, but because of bad leaders, or more often than not, cruel leaders. In fact, that's what's so great about that book, Island of the Lost. It mentions how, in this very strange twist of fate, at the same time that Captain Musgrave was stranded on one part of the island, on the opposite part of the island, in the same climate, the same time, same place, another shipwreck had happened, and another group of people were stranded without food for a year. The difference was that that other group did not organize themselves. They did not pray daily. They did not decide that they were all going to have their place in this mini society of theirs, and they starved. I don't know if there were any survivors. I think there was one survivor from that other shipwreck. So this give us this day, our daily bread, applies to us as a society, as a culture. But the truth is that the word given here that we translate into daily bread is a very rare word in Greek. 
epiosis. In fact, only one other use of it has been found besides in this prayer given in uh, Matthew and Luke. And what it means is super substantial bread. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, says, taken literally, epiosis refers directly to the bread of life, the body of Christ, the medicine of immortality, without which we would have no life within us. Then the Catechism quotes Peter Chrysologus from the 400s who said, the Eucharist is our daily bread. The Father in heaven urges us as children of heaven to ask for the bread of heaven. So in the Our Father, we ask heaven to reach right down into our churches and come to us every day with the Eucharist. And he does. That's why Jesus calls for the daily bread right after calling for his kingdom to come. Because it's by giving ourselves and our neighbors their daily bread and by calling on God to come into our parishes with the Eucharistic bread every day, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Next comes, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As I said, these final petitions are where God goes lower than humanity ever thought possible. He gives us his daily bread to raise us into the kingdom of his will and up into heaven. But sin is what takes us out of his kingdom and down into the depths of the enemy, the evil one. God reveals here that he wants to overthrow the devil, not by destruction, but by forgiveness. And if we don't forgive like him, we're not worthy of him. Jesus truly means this. So we'll talk later about the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven much by his master, but then demanded payback from his peer. He's thrown in prison and Jesus warns us, so also my heavenly father will do for every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. But this phrase that Jesus uses, do not lead us into temptation, has also caused some confusion. Because after all, God doesn't lead us into sin. As the church father Tachalian put it, God forbid that our Lord should seem to be the tempter. Even in the case of Abraham, God offered the sacrifice of his son not to tempt his faith, but to prove it. End quote. In fact, nothing happens to you that God doesn't allow. That includes temptations, and Jesus told his apostles in the agony of the garden, pray that you may not enter into temptation, end quote. So this is something Jesus tells us to pray for more than once. The end of the prayer restates the petition using positive language, deliver us from the evil one. We pray that God will deliver us from the devil, and he does. In fact, it seems like the holiest people like Padre Pio and Mother Teresa have the most difficulty to contend with from the devil. I think the story of St. Anthony of the Desert explains how this works. St. Anthony of the Desert is not the Anthony we usually think of. He's not the beloved Italian saint who finds lost things. Instead, he's an Egyptian hermit in the third century who is considered the father of monasticism. He gave everything he had to the poor and entered the desert to begin an epic battle with demons who he fought by prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. It's all in the book by St. Athanasius, and it's amazing. It's like an ancient Marvel comic book full of excitement and violence and cheer. Well, we're told in the book, he ate once a day after sunset, and his food was bread and salt, his drink water only. And he describes how in the night the demons made such a din that the whole of that place seemed to be shaken by an earthquake. 
and the demons came at him in the likeness of beasts and creeping things. The temptation of Anthony actually has become a common subject in art with some horrifying and weird results. But one thing Anthony could always count on was that while he was battling the devil, Jesus was always there fighting by his side. That's lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil both at once. One night, however, Jesus was missing as Anthony wrestled with evil all night long. Finally, after hours of struggle, Jesus showed up. The demon suddenly vanished and the pain of his body straightaway ceased. Anthony was a little miffed. Where were you? He asked the Lord. Why did you not appear at the beginning to make my pains to cease? Anthony, I was here, Jesus answered him, but I waited to see you fight. I will always be a helper for you. I think this story from Anthony gives the lie to those footprints in the sand stories you see in Christian posters and holy cards. It often shows two pairs of footprints on a beach with the two replaced by one for a time. And often the words of the poem accompany it. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was there that I carried you. Anyway, I like to think that our Christian life is more like Anthony's story and that the Our Father is more like Anthony's story. There's always only one set of footprints in the sand. And only occasionally, when Jesus briefly leaves us to temptation, are there two. And when we're praying there, Our Father, we're not praying, please, Father, come to us in our loneliness. We're praying, please, Father, continue to carry us. Don't put us down. And that's the great thing about the Lord's Prayer, that Our Father. It's the child's prayer that we never outgrow. Whenever we say, Our Father who art in heaven, we're eight again, repeating the words that we first said at our bedside, asking to be encircled by the arms of a loving protector. And this is a prayer he absolutely answers. Look back on your life and you'll see one set of footprints your whole life long as Jesus carried you in the sacraments, in those he sent to help you, in the providence he filled your life with, in the beauty, truth, and goodness that define your daily life. The times we see two sets of footprints are the tough places where he put us on our own for a short time and we remembered right away why we needed him all along. So pray that our Father and know that your Abba, your Father, will be there for you. And he will carry you through the difficulty of the maze we live in and take you up and out to the perfect freedom of heaven. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.